This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Ken Druck. 
Now, Ken has spent multiple decades working in the world of psychology, with some of his earliest incidents that he responded to being the Columbine shooting, 9-11, Sandy Hook, and so many more. He is also the author of multiple books on aging, on caring for an aging relative, grief, mental health, and so much more. Now, one of the reasons why Ken is so familiar with grief and growth is that he himself lost his 21-year-old daughter to an accident in India, and today is the 27th anniversary of her passing, so I wanted to honor her memory by releasing this podcast on that date. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ken Druck. Enjoy. Well, Ken, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Lee Sammartino for connecting us. And secondly, welcome to the Behind the Show podcast today. James, it's an honor to be with you. And uh, you're doing, you know, sometimes we wait, we go to ball games and and the announcer says, uh, please let all the first responders stand We can so we can thank them for their service. I want to thank you for your service. The podcast that you you have been doing, um, the way you're shedding light on such important subjects. So I'm just honored to to be here and thank you for your service. You know, some of us run into buildings that are on fire. Some of us uh, run towards people who are on fire, or people who are whose flame has dwindled down to nothing. And uh, you're one of them. So I'm honored to to be on this podcast with you today. Well, likewise, I know you do a lot of work with my profession and even some of the things that we're going to talk about as far as aging, taking care of, you know, aging relatives and grief. These are areas that, as you touch on, I listened to you on um, the Hoffman Institute podcast um, and I heard you talk about this. You know, there's a there's a lot of people in the mental health field that really aren't given the tools to mentor on grief. And then, you know, there's my profession where we will call a death and we really have no tools in our toolbox to deal with that in the acute setting as well. So I want to thank you firstly for all the work that you've done for my population and the uh, civilians of the world. And I'm very, very excited to unpack all your work today. Thank you. Thanks for having me in your living room. This is a great living room. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that you can be, you know, halfway across the world and here we are sitting in the same living room together and goodness knows how many people are listening in their own living room and where they are. But I welcome them into this conversation. I think these are such important. There's how many important subjects do we not talk about? You know, because it's just too damn uncomfortable. It's you know, it, it, it's out of that comfort zone. But how many are so essential 
to the quality of our lives and our health. And, you know, you're here you are kind of a visionary leader in the first responder wellness field, you know, and uh, and I've been doing a lot of that, too. And by drilling down and having just simply having this conversation, I'm just hoping and praying that we're that we shed some light for a lot of the people that are listening on what they're going through. You know, you and I are here to make to create relevance and to, to make this to, you know, the people that are listening say, my God, that's exactly what I'm going through. And uh, that's that's thank you for putting words together that that show me that and giving me some concrete steps and things I can do to move my life forward. Absolutely. Well, speaking of moving life forward, let's start at the very beginning of yours. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. You know, I come from a, a very interesting background. Talk about right out of the chute. Um, I'm named for a prominent attorney who was one of the first people to speak out against Hitler and was the, one of the first people to be killed um, in Baba Yar with 33,000 other Jews um, who were buried in mass graves. We don't even know where he was buried. But my uncle Casile is whom I'm buried for, who was buried there and who I'm named for. So I came into the world, uh, you know, on the wave of a, a time in history. You know, we we look back at 9-11, we look back at things like the Holocaust, we look at other periods of history where horrific things happen. How could we possibly have sank so low? How could these things have possibly been allowed to happen? And I come out of that, and my family, my relatives, my parents, all my grandparents spoke with, you know, deep European accents. Um, my my grandfather from Russia and grandmother from Russia on one side and from Poland and Austria the other on the other side. And so we came into the world, you know, with parents who are just trying to to find a safe place to, to create, to have a family, to make a life, and who are looking over their shoulders like, oh, my God, are we at risk because we happen to be born into the Jewish religion? Um, you know, are we at risk? Is this a safe place? What can we do? Here we are in the United States, came through, you know, Ellis Island and, and our parents, you know, are doing the best they can with whatever limited skills they have. So that was my point of entry, you know, sitting in a room, my earliest memories are sitting in a room with relatives who are all striving and struggling to, to fit in and to, and to find a place in this new country, in this, in this new land. And as immigrants who are trying to uh, trying to create a safe place to, to have a family. And I was this little kid who, uh, you know, was kind of watching the room. You know how some kids, some kids are just running all over the place and some kids are kind of watching the room. I was one of the kids who's watching the room to see, you know, who was fighting, where there were grudges, who was competing. My father, you know, four brothers. Um, who was who was being civil and kind and generous and thank goodness there was a there was a mix of all of it and I was watching the room to see you know what where do I fit into this mix and it turned out that the way I fit in was by listening to people 
by learning from people verbally. Uh, wow, I, and, and it, I struggled in school. I had learning disabilities. They called them disabilities back in the day. They were, now we call them learning differences. But I struggled to learn in the way that they taught in school. But by listening, I listened intently to people and learned from people that way, wherever I was. And uh, that's the way life started for me. It's amazing how much, how, excuse me, how engaging a story can be and how much you can pull from it. And if you look at the way that a lot of academia has in some way devolved, we have great teachers in those great subjects that are, you know, at the nucleus of what they're trying to teach. But that standardized testing model has re you know, removed a lot of that hands-on um, organic experience and that passion from teaching that maybe someone with a little more latitude was able to go in a school. When you look back at these older figures that you were raised with, um, what were some of the stories, whether it was when they were still back in Europe, whether it was their immigration stories, that you remembered, pros and or cons? Great question. Uh, one of the stories that I write about in my new book in detail, <clears throat> because my, my daughter asked me a couple of years ago, she said, Dad, <clears throat> would you tell me the story of your life because the, there's going to be a time you're not going to be here. And my kids are going to say, who is my grandpa? Who is Poppy? You know, what about his life? And what would any one of us give to be able to turn back the clock and interview our great, great grandfather or grandmother <clears throat> to find out what was happening in their world at the time they were alive? How did they deal with it? What were their things that weighed most heavily on their hearts? What were the things that made their hearts sing? Where did they find joy? What were they like as families? And so on and so forth. But <clears throat> so I wrote my last book, even though it's about how we go on in this life from disaster, tragedy, setbacks, changes, challenges, and opportunities. How do we go on after we win the lotto? It's, it's also a memoir. And in that memoir, I talk about my grandfather. My grandfather was an iron worker, and he lived in Russia at the time of Tsarist Russia. And the Tsar, here, you know, here, God, the history of the Jews were being chased all over the place until we finally got to Israel. And the Tsar wanted to get rid of the Jews, killed my grandfather's best friend who was objecting. Well, my grandfather sought revenge and had to escape Russia without his wife and his oldest son. Came across to through Ellis Island, started doing iron work in the Bronx, New York, um, sent for, managed to get enough money to send for his wife and son, and then had four more sons, you know, back here and in, in once once his wife got back. So the story of one of the great stories is of my grandfather's escape from Russia and his what he did to seek revenge when his best friend had been killed by a czar's czar soldier in an era where it was becoming very unsafe for Jews to live in that part of Russia. And then some of the other stories that have an interesting twist to what's happening in the world today in our world is that both of my grandparents, my, my other grandparents, my mom's father and mother, lived near Kiev 
in what's now Ukraine. They, they were there. They were a part of it. They lived in a little village. And now, you know, I've been helping families from Ukraine who managed to get over here and some people who are still over there and and people and families who've lost fathers and brothers, husbands. Um, and my grandparents, part of my draw to help, besides the obvious sense of injustice and what's happening there, um, with 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 the psychosis of a man named Putin, um, and that's a, that's an interesting conversation of it in it itself. But my grandparents were from that part of the world, and so I'm part. I'm my the people on whose shoulders I stand come from that section of the world, and my heart has gone out to them since as this has all unfolded. And some of the other stories are of relatives that were lost. There were dozens of relatives who disappeared into concentration camps and were never heard from again. And then my aunt, who ended up giving, she passed a number of years ago, and she and her sister were hidden by a family in France up in the mountains and were hidden there for four years in little rooms in the attic and in the basement and at great risk to these heroic families who said, we're going to, we're going to save you. Even as soldiers, you know, German soldiers marched through these little villages. So those are some of the stories that, that grandparents told as they get came over um, of, they created new lives and newfound joy and, with newfound courage. And when I think about the things that I've gone through or the people that I've helped have gone through horrific, horrific tragedies, I draw inspiration and strength from my grandparents. Now, with that same topic, I've had um, had a, a uh, one of the very first um, Marine Raiders he was, uh, who was on Okinawa. I had um, Dr. Uh, Edith Eager, who was actually in Auschwitz, and she became a psychologist. Oh, so, Edith. Yes, amazing, amazing conversations, both of them. But that's from that era. And it's so interesting to hear their perspective on the impact of their trauma to where they are now. One of the things that's really become more apparent to me when we look at the mental health crisis, the opioid you know, uh, crisis that we're on, the gang violence, is the element not just of trauma in that one generation, but multi-generational trauma. What do you see, because you've got quite an interesting perspective with you know, several generations back, of the impact of not just the household that someone was brought up in, but the generations prior to that too? Yeah, it's, it's so clear that trauma gets passed epigenetically from generation to generation and uh, that that's something we still don't completely understand. You know, how, how could that come on, get over it, get on with it. We're, we're not a grief or trauma literate culture. We really have not learned our lessons. I, I teach grief literacy occasionally at the Harvard school of public health. I train young psychiatrists, residents at, University of California Medical School, and it's not anything that's being taught or spoke, talked about, <clears throat> and yet it is there. It's there, and you know it's there in generations of people. Why do you know 
certain cultures have to have the talk. Why do African-American parents have to have the talk with their teenage kids or their, their kids who are about to be teenagers? Don't raise your hands. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know, why, why is that cautionary tale told to, to people who have suffered tre- tremendous trauma um, and who've been through generational trauma? And how, how are those alerts sent out? How is that transmitted in a way not to fill that child with, with bitterness and with fear, but with simple, you know, to make informed decisions about the way they act out in the world? And that's part of the challenge is how do we do that? And one of the things I think that we underestimate is the, is the element when we talk about, you know, people ask me, and, and I'm going to later in our conversation, I'm going to tell you about, you know, a horrific trauma that I have gone through and that my family went through. But from that, I tell people, people say, how are you doing now? And I tell people, I walk with a limp in my heart. I say, what? Well, you know what? Some of my buddies came back from Vietnam. Some of the people that I've worked with came back from uh, critical incident situations and they walk with a limp literally but they also walk with a limp figuratively they took a hit i took a hit my family took a hit and we kind of walk with a limp because it's going to affect us forever but stop the instead of being ashamed of that instead of feeling like we are lesser human beings that we're broken I hold in great pride that my brokenness is the strongest element of integrity in my wholeness. The fact that I have found a way to hold my brokenness, not as something that's wrong with me, but something that I have learned from my trip to the bottom of pain, from the bottom of horror and things that I have witnessed and gone through in my life the losses I have suffered, the things that my eyes can't unsee. So, <clears throat> you know, how do how we do that, the alchemy of healing from trauma and loss is what I've spent. That's been my life's work. That's how we go on, is learning how to heal. And it's not a matter, you know, most people think, oh, God, this is going to be one of those, another one of those positive think talks. No. What we're going to be, you and I are going to be talking about is how we heal organically when we are able to clear the path forward and give ourselves permission to feel what we feel, to have gone through what we've gone through, to be experiencing what we're experiencing without shame or guilt or, or defensiveness or trauma, knee-jerk defensiveness, and, and being re-traumatized back into a state of uh, where we think it's happening again right now, when we clear the path forward, and as we clear the path forward, we have the capacity to heal organically from the inside out. And that's what I'm going to want to talk to. If folks stick around and they're interested, I'm, that's what I, I think I have to contribute to your audience. So staying on the childhood for a moment, because I want to move forward on the psychology journey in just a second, but um 
so many people that have come on the show, myself included, we I was completely blind to the impact of what happened to us before we put the uniform on what happens to us for the rest of our career. And so many people, I mean, it could be something as, as seemingly minor as they were the middle child or maybe they were adopted or fostered and there's an abandon, abandonment, but then there was a huge amount of sexual abuse in a lot of the male responders too. When you look back at your childhood with this, you know, amazing lens that you have now, you know, decades later, were there elements of your upbringing that would have brought some trauma prior to the things that we're going to talk about? Absolutely. As, as you've pointed out, you know, that it's interesting because I could not start writing my last book that I just finished wrote me, but it could not have written me unless the first couple of chapters were about the things that predisposed me the predisposition to trauma, the things, not only the muscles, you know, the, the broken places. I broke my collarbone pole vaulting. I was a, an athlete, you know, but I'm stronger in the broken places. My collarbone calcified. I could, ne- I could try to break it. It wouldn't break now. So it's not only the, the trauma, my predisposition, that I'm extra sensitive and I'm I'm weaker and more sensitive in those places. It's that sometimes we're stronger. Sometimes we're oppositionally defiant in those places. Sometimes we're easily triggered to anger in those places or to giving up or to fighting back. So all of us are completely different in our response to adversity. But for me, the adversities, I'd say two or three. Number one, it was the background of of who am I and and I I'm from this family and I'm 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 growing into the world who am I entering the world how am I going to be seen in this world and related to especially with the background of who I've named for what my family has been through uh who my family now is the se- the second thing is that being and I mentioned it briefly before is that I was I was wired we're all wired with something I was wired with learning differences. My brain did not work in the same way that the schools teach and expect kids to learn. So my first trauma was the feeling that, am I one of the dumb kids? You know, and how do I, how do I deal? Well, I became the school's best athlete. I excelled as, as an athlete. It's like, hey, I've got to make this up. I've got to compensate. So the first 15 years of my life, were about compensatory skills that I had developed in order to feel worthy, in order to feel enough, smart enough, valuable enough, worth enough, uh, worth enough to be a friend, a buddy, you know, even a little boyfriend. And so they were about those things and dealing with that and overcoming it and finding out that I was actually one of the smart kids. Look, how, how did that happen? How did I evolve into realizing that, but painfully so, after years of suffering? So I'd say that's one adversity that I had to deal with. The other adversity is that I'd become a star athlete. I was all New England in soccer, all New England in basketball, even though I was I was only 5'11". I was, I was the, the kid who could dunk the ball. And I had a vertical leap and, you know, but coming down on that ankle, enough times um, 
I was told you're not going to be walking by age 40 unless you have some kind of surgery. You have no ligament left in your ankles. So the second hit was uh, that my illustrious career as an athlete was kind of taken away. I was relegated to team sports and which I made a lifetime. I ended up playing in this senior Olympics in soccer. So I played club soccer the rest of my adult life, you know, for as long as I could play. But I lost that at that edge, everything of my value and worth and esteem was tied to um, my athleticism and my ability to excel and and to win all this favor and acclaim as an athlete. So I'd say that was a that was a huge, huge loss. And then I think the the losses of um, dealing with my dad, the third one I'll mention is that my dad suffered. He lived in poverty as a kid. His parents came over from Russia and um, he had he had to compete with all with four brothers. Now, he was the youngest. So they could afford to take a bath once a week in their fifth fifth floor walk up upright apartment, small apartment, five boys. There are two parents. And my grandfather working as a steel worker, putting up balconies in the Bronx, New York, these high rise, these apartments. Well, my father got into the bath last of five brothers. You can imagine why, you know, I'd ask the question later, why did my dad spend an hour in the shower when I was a little kid? Well, he was still washing off the dirt. <laughs> it's because he could. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, but the other, the fifth element was that my dad suffered rheumatic fever as a kid. And at age 35, he had a heart attack right in front of our house and almost died. So my dad became for years a fragile, don't upset your dad, you'll kill him. You know, he became a fragile figure, even though he later, he evolved, he rose above that. And he became a warrior and a very successful businessman in New York City. But I think that was a horrible trauma to to see my dad kind of unravel and to feel like maybe he was close to death. So those are those are a couple of the adversities that I faced. And I was raised in, you know, in an environment right in in and around New York City where things were really changing. Things were really evolving. Um you know, my mother was very active in uh, in social justice causes. She helped head up the the Association for Christians and Jews. She was trying to figure out how how do we all get to work together? How do we find common ground? What we all want for our families and what we want to the community we want to live in. So she was doing that and civil rights things and and so all of that was going on. And my father was trying to m- make a living and run a business and um, with and all these unions were forming and coming in and trying to take his business over. And he was trying to maintain his independence and stay in business. And so it was all, it was a, it was a busy and full time. I, I remember in junior high school, um, you know, horrific thing. Uh, here I was, I was living in a country where we had a president that we really believed in. He, had, he was a war hero. Um he he stood up to Cuba, to Russia and Cuba, President Kennedy. And in junior high school, 
you know, I'm in, I'm in class and we all hear that President Kennedy was assassinated. That took all the wind out of my sails. It's like, my God, what kind of a world are we living in? You know, and now kids today, they get this news, breaking news every hour. You know, that was a traumatic thing. I can imagine how it affects the nervous systems and the brains of kids today to hear that every day there's a, there's a, a mass shooting. So, <clears throat> but those were some of the things that impacted me. And I'd like to believe that that they sensitized me. Watching my mother as an advocate for social justice sensitized my heart to what people who have been discriminated against for generations, as you as you pointed out earlier, um, what they might be feeling, what they might be going through, why they might be doing what they're doing or saying what they're saying. And my dad's fierce determination to crawl, to heal his heart, to make his heart strong enough and to run his business and to be successful in a very competitive world really taught me a lot about fierce determination and how, how to go on. So those are some of the things. Well, thank you for sharing. I want to unpack a couple of things that you talked about. Firstly, I had um, a, uh, where's she from? Louisiana, a high school student from Louisiana, Emma Benoit. And extremely, you know, very, very pretty. She was a cheerleader. She, from the outside looking in, should have been quote unquote happy. She ended up basically executing her suicide attempt. She survived, thank goodness. And now is this incredible voice for mental health, especially in the younger people. But when I un unwrapped her, you know, earlier life, there wasn't a huge amount when it came to what we would think of as trauma, but it was more the social media, there was some bullying, and then there was that fear of, I'm 17, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And so when you look at the successful, you know, athlete or the scholar or whatever it is, I would assume that a lot of us parents kind of downplay the impact that is the fear of graduation, especially if that was everything, whether it was you injured as an athlete or whether you, you know, you graduate and you didn't get accepted to college. So what are you seeing on that generation now when it comes to you know, any stresses and impacting the mental health? A huge amount of pressure, 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 pressure. The news they get, the information they digest, they're asked to digest, is coming at such a fast pace, fast and furious. They almost don't know how to turn it off, unplug, and listen to their own heart. And so I, you know, I'm privileged to be the coach of some very young people, um, a beautiful young woman who from age 10 has been uh, recording albums, making movies, um, is very famous. So why at age 13 did she want to kill herself? Why did she want to end it all? Here she had fame, fortune, um, a path to live out the rest of her, at least her youthful years, as a famous, well-known, loved, and not a, maybe not loved, but adored kid. And what are the conversations that we had? What is the story she told me about what had been going on in her life that, that had led to? Well, it was pressure. Her parents had bought into the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel. She had lost her parents, and they'd become her managers. 
the expectations for her continuing to perform and having the sense that other parts of her weren't getting to ripen, that she had a mind she wanted to use. She wanted to think critically about what was happening in the world. She didn't want to just sing mindlessly about kids falling in and out of love. She wanted to sing about life. What is life? How do we live it? How do we, how do we grow and build integrity, lives of integrity? How do we stand up and use our voices? How do we learn to listen? Winston Churchill's, one of my favorite Winston Churchill quotes is, you know, had to do with, it takes courage to speak up. And it takes an equal amount of courage to just listen. And, you know, how do we become those people that can speak up and advocate for based on the values and beliefs we have about what's right, about what makes our world a better place and what diminishes us how we take the high road rather than traveling on the low road, how we bring it light rather than darkness and hatred and, and so on. And that's what he wants. So him being able to talk about, you know, if, if, if I do movies and music, they're going to be about that. I don't want to just go through the motions. I don't care about fame. I don't care. I have enough money. I don't care about that. So re, re, pushing the reset button, and what gives our lives meaning and purpose is what a lot of kids right now just need the conversations. They need a parent or a mentor or a teacher or a clergy or a coach that, said, that just opens the lines of communications with that child so that they can explore their options rather than feel pressured to choose one option or another which to them feels like it's not going to be fruitful. This is not what I want. This is not what's going to make my heart sing. As a matter of fact, it's creating anxiety. It's creating pressure. And what the behavior you see, me cutting myself or having panic attacks or being depressed and not wanting to go to school, it's, it's probably because there's an undue amount of pressure that I feel just waking up in the morning or going to sleep at night. And I don't know how to constructively talk about it or get it to lessen that pressure. So I'm doing these things. To, I'm crying out for help. I'm calling for attention. So maybe there's somebody who can get it, who will understand and help guide me so that I can take some of this pressure off and really direct my life, get to know what I love, what I want, and help me guide and direct my life in that way, in that on that path. And understanding that the path in life changes every couple of years. You know, it's like it may not be what I want to do in a couple of years from now, but let me build the infrastructure as a whole human being. So that it's not just one thing. Let me diversify the investments. His parents had one channel for him to travel down. And, and, and the people he was meeting in the rec movie and record industry with her, that she was meeting were, were guiding her in that direction alone. And so how does she begin to, to, is there a safe place to begin to explore what the options are, what other brilliant parts of her are seeking expression or curious or feel very young and very lost? 
can, can, is there a safe place to do that? And, and that's what, that's why she came into coaching with me. But I think a lot, God knows how many kids are feeling the same way. Not that they've achieved fame and fortune, you know, at age 15, but, but, um, but they just really need that open end, that line of communication, that open ended, that, that adult who can ask an open ended question that's not laced with a message. You know, so when I say, you know, you know, when somebody comes up to me and says, Ken, have you always been, you know, that way? It's, it's you know, a, a critical message is hidden in the question. Kids don't want questions open and they want open-ended questions, not questions that are laced with kind of a directive and a message for what they, what they, what the adult wants them to do or think or how they want them to think about things. No, it's an open-ended question. It's an honest inquiry that gives them a safe place to explore, to allow what's inside of them to be spoken and recognized and acknowledged and, and even acknowledged as, I don't know right now. What a wonderful thing to be able to say, I don't know. You know, to say that safely without somebody trying to fill that emptiness when it's not ready to be filled. It just needs... It needs exploration. It needs more questions. It needs safety. It needs permission. No, I mean, it's, it's incredibly insightful. When I'm listening to you talk, I think one of the issues that a lot of people have is there's this sense that you should know what you want to do when you're 18. And if most of us are honest, we take a step back. We had no idea what we wanted, what we truly wanted to do. What was that burning desire? Some people did, and good for them, and they followed that path, and hopefully they're still loving it to this day. But so many of us didn't, and there's a lot of, I think, hypocrisy in what children are told. I mean, how many how many uh, very uh, out-of-shape parents are living vicariously through their kids' athletics and screaming at them and other parents from the sidelines when they themselves are not walking the physical <laughs> walk themselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's uh, the last book that I wrote two books ago, I wrote a book called Courageous Aging. I kind of looked down and <clears throat> realized I was 65 years old. It's like, when did that happen? <laughs> you know, and, and, but I realized that everything I had learned about grief and loss applied to aging that some of us spend our whole, the rest of the last quarter or half of our lives grieving the loss of our younger self. We put ourselves in a box. We, we decided that the real valuable, that we'd aged out, we're no longer, you know, hang us out on the 99 cent rack. We're no longer valuable. We've aged out. We're no longer in play. You know, and instead of saying, hey, the seasons of life change, but look at you. You are actually in many, so many ways the better version of yourself. You know, you're emotionally stronger, mentally tougher, free of see, approval seeking. And, you know, you're, you're more courageous. You've summoned newfound courage. So I wrote this book, Courageous Aging. People liked it. It became a number one on Amazon bestsellers in its first day. But guess who read the book? It was the, the adult children of aging parents were reading the book. So my daughter said to me, Dad, you need to write a book for us about 
what it's like to be strengthening a relationship with our parents who are getting older. You know, we see our dad and he, he can't get out of a chair or he can't bend down to play on the floor with our grandkids, with his grandkids. Or, you know, we see mom doing this or forgetting that. Or, <clears throat> you know, how can we get our parents in game shape for a new season of life that's full of opportunity and meaning and love and purpose? So I wrote a book called Raising an Aging Parent. Guidelines for Families in the Second Half of Life. And again, it became a bestseller in its first day on Amazon. And But that's the book that people want to read because it gives them a kind of a sneak peek at, oh, my God, I'm going to be, I'm one day that's going to be me and it's going to be my kids, you know. And But now how do I deal with, how do I kind of unbias myself and really help my parents as they're struggling with getting retiring, as they're struggling with having to downsize, move out of the family home, maybe into a smaller place, as they're struggling with the fact that they turn 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, uh, as they're dealing with mortality for the first time and or dreading getting older, you know, and 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 feeling depressed. How do I how do, we, how do we put them on a better track? How do I become part of the solution in my mother or father's life as they get older? So anyhow, so these are, these are important issues for family that recycle over and over and over again that we can face into. And when we do and we learn how to deal with them effectively, you know, we've changed the world epigenetically. We've changed things, the things we can change. For the next generation, we've advantaged the next generation. We've paid what we are learning. We've paid the good in our lives forward. And for me, that is one of the most noble things we can do in this life is to pay the good forward. Well, as you said, you've written several books on the concept of aging or the experience of aging. One of the things that I actually wrote a chapter on in my book was a real aha moment in the fact that there are many cultures around the world, especially you know, one would argue less developed, and I use that in air quotes, depends how you look at it, maybe more developed. Um, the elders are more often than not seen as, as the wise, the ones that you're going to for mentorship, to hear the stories of you know all the lessons that you're going to learn as a younger warrior or you know, whatever role you fill. But you look at the UK, Australia, the US, we somehow have shifted to where the elderly are almost a nuisance, like they're, they're a pest, as it were. And we seem to disregard all the, the wisdom. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some horrible people that grow old. Now they're old, horrible people. But there are also doctors and nurses and you know, these incredible men and women that were altruistic and kind and caring and incredibly knowledgeable who... You know, it's a huge disservice to not continue to hear their message and learn from their lessons. And I think there's an arrogance about the last couple of generations, which I'm you know, including myself, where you look at ancient wisdom full stop, it's disregarded, whether it's health, whether it's food, whether it's nature, the environment. So, what is your observation of that shift in the perception of wisdom and, and, and aging that we seem to have lost in modern society? Yeah. I, I give it a shared responsibility. I think that's happened because of the arrogance and the lack of sen sense of self-worth 
on the part of people my age, as well as younger people, if I reflect to you as a younger man, a disrespect or a disregard for myself, I don't even regard myself. They say that self-esteem is the reputation you have with yourself. If I have no self-esteem, no self-respect, if I have all these insecurities that I am masking as arrogance, you know, then how are how can I expect? I haven't earned your trust. I haven't earned your respect. I haven't earned the worth. If I have anything of worth to share, I haven't earned it. Your attention to my worth. And so it's a shared responsibility. You know, just as it's it works the other direction too. How many people my age marginalize or minimize or dismiss people because they're younger? We put younger people in a box. It's like, well, he couldn't know very much of anything. He's only been here, you know, 25 years or 30 years or 40 years. You know, I'm ripened. I'm, you know, so there's an arrogance that operates in both directions. But when people of different ages, different generations, different ethnicities dare to come together to find common ground, you know, I have a good buddy who's, uh, you know, who's one of the world leaders in genomics, a guy named Craig Venter, the Venter Institute in San Diego. He deconstructed the whole gen- DNA. And he'll tell you, you know, we're mostly all very similar, whether we're different ages or ethnicities or background, where the hell we come from. We're, we're made of the same stuff. You know, there's only a couple of small variables that differentiate us. So do we, do we, when we find that common ground, then the wealth of what we have to share with one another becomes available. Then we get wealthy rather than holding, putting each other in a box and holding each other at a distance with judgments, most of which are completely inaccurate. And we miss out on the opportunity of each other, of the the intimacy, the teaching, the the cross-sectional learning that we have for each other. You know, I learned as much, I gave a program last week to a group of 100 mothers, and they're relatively new mothers. They're my daughter's age. You know, I'm a grandpa, I have twins. I have twin grandsons. My daughter's twins, so... So I've learned a lot because I, during COVID, I became the grandpa nanny. So I know my grand, my <laughs> grandson. I really know them. You know, my grandson came up to me two weeks ago. He calls me, pa- they named me Poppy. He says, Poppy. I said, what? What's, what's up? What's happening? He says, uh, he says, this morning I woke up and my penis was looking at me. <laughs> oh, Really? It's like okay, so, you know, so, yeah. Did it say was? Did it say anything? You know, uh, did it? No, no, it didn't. Say, oh, wow. You know, how about that? You know, it's like, and that's all he wanted to tell me. It was, you know, and so these kids, these kids really trust me, but they sometimes reveal things to me. They, yeah, they make me laugh. But then, that, and a couple of sentences later, their cat died a couple of weeks ago, and. And he said, Poppy, I, I don't want heaven. I don't want Odie in heaven. I want Odie here with me. I don't like the idea of heaven. Don't, I don't, don't talk to me about heaven. So here I am, 
So I learned from my grandkids. But here I am with 100 moms, young moms, and talking to them about parent effectiveness. One one season of my career, I, I was working, I was all the work. I wrote a book called How to Talk to Your Kids. And I was doing work in parent effectiveness because that was what was happening. In my, I was a dad. And, and that's what I wanted to immerse myself in learning about. I wanted to be one of the best dads in the world. So I'm talking to them about what I know. And they're talking to me. And we're all learning from each other and laughing together. And I'm finding out that some things are just the way they were when my, my daughters were little girls. And some things have changed. Dads are more hands-on now. Dads, you know, thank, thankfully, dads are more involved. I was one of the first guys when my kids were born to, to be in the delivery room helping deliver my daughters. I almost got arrested. I, they tried to throw me out. You know, most men my age were giving out cigars in, in the waiting room, in the lobby, that's as close as they got to bonding with their children at the moment of birth or witnessing the miracle of birth. Still nothing more amazing you can do than to give birth to another human being. But anyhow, so here I am with, you know, there I created an opportunity and they reciprocated. And it was such a powerful learning experience being with these moms. How many of us walk right past opportunities because we've put somebody else in a box. We've objectified them rather than ask them one simple open-ended question. How are you doing? Or, you know, you know, told them something about yourself. You opened a line of communication with another person. And instead of staying at a distance, you, you opened that line and a richness came forward. And my favorite story about that is that I would I another book I wrote when I wrote my Real Rules of Life book I got booked on a radio show in Nashville Tennessee and I find out from my the person who my publisher that was arranging these interviews that the guy that was interviewing me was one of the guys who started the Tea Party a kind of radical conservative group. And, and, and I said to myself, because I'm, I'm more of a open-ended, I, I don't affiliate exclusively with any party, but you can tell I'm very humanistic. I'm, I'm kind of liberal in my thinking about a lot of things. So I thought, oh my God, here I am, a shrink from California. I'm going to be liberal Democrat roadkill. This guy's going to try to fillet me. He's going to get me on, you know, oh, yeah, the real rules of life. Let's hear about it from, you know, a California Democrat. And I thought, oh, this guy's going to come after. Well, the first thing he said on the radio, when we got on the radio, he said, he said, Ken, I read your book. And I can't ever imagine going through the tragedy that you went through. Because I have three kids. I can't ever imagine that. And we started talking openly, not about politics, but about the world that we wanted for our kids. We both wanted the same world, a safe world, a good world, a world of social justice and equality and honesty and integrity. And 
where people were following the law or creating new and better laws. And we just thought we just thought there were different ways of getting there. We had disagreements about how to get to that world, which which we now then, because we had established such common ground, we were able to talk about in a friendly way. I learned something from him, he learned something from me. It was a breakthrough. All these, how many of us have unlikely friendships with somebody who disagrees with us about politics? Somebody who voted for the guy we can't stand. How many of us have forged unlikely friendships with somebody from a different background who spent their life in a different or is spending their life in a different education, a different occupation? or went through a diff- completely different life education, you know, and yet some of the richest opportunities for learning, for finding commonality, for making friends, for establishing peace are waiting there, unharvested. No, it's a beautiful perspective and, and a great segue for what I want to pull from you next. Um, when you look at the last two years, if when we say history is doomed to repeat itself, what I have seen, and your family lineage is such a perfect example of this, whether it's a czar in Russia, whether it's a fascist in Germany, whether it's, you know, fast forward the uh, civil rights movement and some of the racism that existed then, it's the tyranny of the very few that affect the massive, you know, the masses, excuse me. And what COVID showed me was the sad truth that it was very easy to divide people and take what I would argue extremist views, the side 5-10% at the most, and masquerade that as what everyone is thinking. So with this multi-generational view you have, um, you know, there was, for example, on, on the racism side, in the 50s, people were hanging black people from trees, which was only a few short years after World War II, which I've still yet to find someone to really explain that to me, how women went back in the kitchen and black people were hung from trees when we were fighting side by side five years prior. But um, you that was a true disaster. What I see in 2023 is this projection of division, even though athletes play side by side we have people that were our presidents of of different ethnicities you know there's there's so much tapestry and collage and spectrum of diversity in this country yet it's still projected as 1950s america which creates pigeonholes which creates division so what is your perspective of the leadership or the divisiveness that we're seeing at the moment and this is this is applied to both both sides, I can't stand either of them, just Absolutely. to be uh, very clear. <laughs> Absolutely. First of all, I agree with what you're saying, that there, you know, what has been unearthed in the COVID era, that has been seeping out before COVID in different forms. It has tried to, it has risen up, this, this kind of division, the divisiveness has has re- reared its ugly head in smaller form. We underestimated horribly how, just the magnitude and the intensity of how some of it was still alive. How the nationalism, the, the kind of nationalism that that corrodes a country, that divides a people, was still very much in force, hidden suppressed, dormant, 
but the forces that activated it. And it's a combined combination of forces that have activated it and activated the polarized opposite from it. Um, have They've all risen up. They've all had free reign and sanction as well as a forum for expression through social media, a forum through expression through diverse national media so that everybody is feeding their narrow view of the way the world is and their objectification and projection of how other people are like they're despicable. And so we, we have also found a tribe that sanctions what we're saying and how we're saying it and the fact that we're saying it. And that has fed this tremendous polarization and it's gotten wider and wider and wider. And the perception that we are in an uncivil war, you know, is partly true. We are in an uncivil war, but as you pointed out, it's a, it's so much smaller. The people, if we broke the pie up into how many people really hate, you know, want to see, want to go out and commit a mass shooting in some democratic, in a church or in a, in a mall or in, you know, at a democratic convention or want to assassinate politicians or kidnap them. You know, you've got such a small minority of people who have fed the monster to the extent that they are that out of touch, out of control and out of their minds that they have become radicalized. Um, then there is another group which has been less radicalized, but has bought into a lot of the narrative, the diatribe, and who is articulating it, even though it, it's a, it, their lives are a contradiction because they have friends and they have people they disagree, they have family members. And, but, but when it comes to talking politics, they become the more radicalized version of themselves. And then there are the people that are sitting on the fence. They hate what's going on. They think it's despicable to demonize and polarize is, is what's really destroying that every time we make the decision consciously or unconsciously to polarize, to project, to objectify, to blame that, you know, in most cases it's, it's what's dividing us that we're part of the problem. And then there are the people that I believe are truly and righteously trying to hold to help us understand where you cross the red line, who are in legitimate positions of authority and enforcement, who hold us accountable and say, you can't do this. You know, you're entitled to your opinion, but you cannot come in and ransack the capital of the United States. You know, you've crossed the line if you've done that. You cannot lie and cheat and break the law and expect a whole pass, you know, and no matter what side you're on or, and if you're, you know, you cannot be a cop who 
you know, put, put in, the, in the position of law enforcement and authority and abuse your power and allow some of your personal biases and racial biases or ethnic biases or religious biases to spill over into your profession, your professional behavior. So, you know, there needs to be accountability. There needs to be enforcement. There needs to be an awareness of what the red line is. There needs to be a tremendous cleanup of, of awareness in people that are becoming unknowingly becoming part of the problem. I write articles for things like the Hill and, you know, and even Costco connection. And I invite people to look at themselves in the mirror and say, are you part of the problem or are you part of the solution? Are you going to make our country stronger? Are you going to make the world safer? Or are you part of what's what's creating greater danger? What is the legacy? Are you going to leave a legacy by your behavior of chaos and danger and threat and fear? Or are you going to leave a legacy of love and safety and become the best and better version of yourself as a human being as you ripen, as you become, as you awaken to how the consequences of the way you behave, the way you're affecting people, the way you affect yourself by how you talk to yourself, the way you affect other people, by the way you talk to other people or don't talk to other people, the way you show up in your community, the way you participate as part of the solution in your community, the way you model being part of the solution in your community. In, in your part of the country, in your part of the nation, in your part of the world, in the world itself, with the planet itself. You know, are you perpetuating have you, by the way you're acting and by your indifference to what's happening in the world, are you per, allowing and sanctioning and perpetuating um a diminishment, a horrific diminishment of the world that your children and grandchildren and future generations will be asked to live in. Native Americans have their seventh generation thinking, I love that. You know, what a noble thing to think out seven generations ahead as to how my behavior and my decision-making and my management of my biases or my, my empathy or compassion or might have an effect on seven on the people seven generations from now. Absolutely. And I think that's the reverse of how we see it. At the moment, there's such short-sightedness that uh, it's like the fast food mentality. You know, I, t I use this quote a lot. In the fire service, we have such a physical and mental health crisis going on, and there needs to be a radical change in the way that we work our first responders, the training we give them, the equipment, the staffing. Um, and it's that whole, it's just what you're talking about. You know, you have to be able to plant the seed of a tree under which the shade you'll never know. You can't be that, you know, budget year leader where you want to look like a rock star and get a Christmas bonus in 12 short months. You may not know, you may not see the results, but whether it's 10 years or a hundred years later, hopefully people will look back and be like, yeah, that's the guy that stopped them bulldozing the rainforests or, you know, finally stopped them pumping all these emissions into air or poisoning our water or, you know, whatever it is. But it's just this 
this kind of narcissistic look at me element that gets in the way so many times. And the irony that I see someone who I would consider myself spiritual, but I don't align with any specific religion, which I kind of look at it almost like the Wayne Dyer eyes, you know, take all the wisdom and kind of formulate your own. These books all seem to tell us to be kind and compassionate and grateful and part of a community. Yet I see these people walk out of some of these buildings and immediately do the polar opposite of the very teachings that it seems like these Bibles and Torahs and Qurans are telling people to do. So we've been left with these multi-generational instructional books that seem to, you know, really tell us, hey, if you want to avoid these wars, if you want to avoid this tyranny, be kind, be grateful and forge community. But if you are unkind and you allow division in your communities, then, you know, look at <laughs> the first part of the Bible, for example. Here's what's going to happen. If you want some eye for an eye, then, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Beautifully said. Beautifully spoken. By the way, is that your... Is I want to steal a quote from you. The plant a tree on whose shade you may never stand under. I don't know whose it is. I don't know if I'm even quoting it properly, but that is uh, at least paraphrasing one that I remember hearing I, a while I ago. I love your paraphrase. That's such a beautiful, beautiful, so beautifully said. And yeah, we get those choices. And, you know, some of the people that I imagine tune into your podcasts are going through so many trans, such difficult transitions in their life right now that they're wondering, you know, where would I, I don't have the bandwidth to save the world. Um, I understand what you're saying right now. I'm just trying to fight my way back into life from something I've, I've been going through. And it could be they've suffered a loss, a life loss. Somebody they love has died. Um, you know, somebody in their family or a coworker, a colleague, um, or somebody who, who's been a mentor to them. It could be that they've suffered a living loss. Nobody's died, but they're going through a horrific divorce. Um, they're turning 50, and, and they feel like they're staring into the abyss, um, that life is over. And they're wondering how how life, a life of meaning and purpose and, and, uh, and status, that they've lost their worth and status. Who knows what living loss, or they're, you know, maybe they've suffered an illness. You know, I was one of the guys who you know, went down into the pit after 9-11, every day I'd meet with the dads of the firefighters because I was helping coordinate bereavement, working with the New York Fire Department. And I have, you know, I have had trouble. I've, I've, I haven't fully acknowledged it, but going down and breathing that air has affected me through my adult life. So that's been kind of a living loss for me. You know, it's like at times losing my health to that. And I, so I think about all the possible living losses that people suffer. Maybe it's, maybe it's a stock market. It's gone to hell. Maybe it's watching what's happening in Ukraine and watching too much breaking news that is so depressing and devastating. How could this be happening in our world in 2023? How the hell could this be happening? Or watching, you know, one of the the new uh, the new series on the environment. I watched this an episode last night. My God, it was so real, but it was so depressing. Where it, it takes place in the year twenty thirty seven, and and 
so many things have come to pass. The world's on fire. The world's flooding. All the things that we warned ourselves would happen are finally coming to pass. And people are having to make decisions and countries. And, and there are still people who, whose greed is running the world because they don't give a damn. They think it's all going to be over anyhow. I, I saw, it's not the same as, I saw Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's one of my favorite people on the planet. And I saw him in person last week. And he was, and he ended his talk on kind of a sour note. He said, look, 22 billion years from now, the, the earth is expanding, the universe is expanding so rapidly that 22 billion years from now, gravity will be rendered irrelevant. And the universe is going to kind of sink into a big black hole. It's going to be non-existent. So don't worry about it. You know, don't stress. <laughs> 22 billion years. <laughs> I thought, oh, what a pleasant thought. Life ends. Yeah, one of the things we we in life for the, our planet. But why? hey, why don't we make the most of whatever time we have? Why don't we make why don't we make things livable? Our planet, our water drinkable and our air breathable and our for our grandchildren. If we if 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 that's the closest association we can make to love in the future and care and concern and commitment, let's 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 imagine it for our grandchildren. But then let's think about them and their children and grandchildren. Let's go all the way out to the seventh generation and and not become indifferent or passive or hide or so self-involved because of what we're going through right now, whether it's a law, living loss or life loss. So my heart goes out to anybody who's, who is dealing with, you know, what I call a uh, time in the soup who's going through a personal crisis and a real rough stretch right now. And for those who are listening, who have a little bit of energy left over, you know, send three dollars to Ukrainian Red Cross. Send, you know, do something in your community to support um, the things that you believe in, the good things, and uh, get behind paying it forward in whatever ways you can, to whatever extent you can. Well, so well, thank you for that. Well, speaking of loss. Um... I would love to kind of walk through your own kind of real um, traumatic event as a parent and then walk forward in your journey as far as your own grief and recovery or, or growth, should I say. So talk to me about Jenna, who she was, and then we'll kind of, you know, transition into March 27th. Yeah. I uh, talked a little earlier for those who have been on the podcast for the entire time. <clears throat> I talked about a, a tragedy that my I went through, my family went through. Um, I was, I've been blessed above anything else with two daughters, um, Jenna and Steffi. And my daughters, had, like I said earlier in the podcast, the most important thing in the world for me was to be a good dad. And Jenna was a superstar. Jenna was, uh, at age nine, she was voted San Diego's Young Woman Entrepreneur of the Year. She started a fresh juice business. People where I live in Southern California would just let their oranges fall off the tree and rot in the ground. Jenna said, that's not right. Let's, let's do something with that. 
and she started a juice business. So suddenly she was on the front page of the San Diego Union Tribune as voted San Diego's young woman entrepreneur. That pattern continued. Um, she was, you know, the president of her class at, a, at an upscale high school. Um, she, at age 15, created with her best friend a leadership program for girls. She said, Dad, basically, girls, we adolescence is a horror show for girls. We learn how to be mean to ourselves first. We put ourselves in a box. We judge ourselves. We, we, we pressure ourselves. We diminish ourselves unless we look absolutely stark raving beautiful like the girls on the cover of all the magazines and as skinny as them. If we didn't come in that package, we're, you know, we we're mean to ourselves. We're mean to each other. Mean girl culture, dad, you can't imagine what girls do um, and how much of even the way girls act with boys is really behavior directed towards their girlfriends or their girl enemies. So she said, if this is the best we can do in raising girls in their teenage years, we suck. And she said, I'm going to create a program to teach girls how to be leaders in their own lives and in their communities. And she did. So this continued through high school. When she graduated, she was accepted as one of a President's Leadership Institute scholar. She was voted one of America's top 40 kids, future leaders. And she went to school in her junior year of college after being selected the first Jewish president in her sorority nationally. It's one of the biggest sororities. They had never had a Jewish president. Jenna was Jewish president. She went to work on the sidelines. She infiltrated MTV. So I have pictures of her up here with um, at the MTV Beach House. Why did she infiltrate MTV? Because she believed that there was misogyny in all the music that that's not, you don't talk to girls that way. You don't talk about girls that way. So she wanted to change the, the misogyny that she felt was in MTV. And she got a major job. Well, Jenna was on a path to greatness. She was a visionary leader. And she said, Dad, I know the world is bigger than where I'm going to school and bigger than California and bigger than the U.S. There's a program called Semester at Sea, and I want to go. And for a whole semester, we're going to live on a ship and travel around the world. And it, it's it's going to be amazing. I know it's a lot of money and a lot of time. Can we can we do it? And I said, yes, we're going to, you're in. It sounds wonderful. And we said goodbye in Los Angeles. I drove her up. Um, she gave me her butterfly kiss, a big hug, a squeeze. I told her this is going to be a launching pad for the rest of your life. You're going to come home and tell me about the miracles. And so she would call me from, they, they started in uh, the Caribbean. They went to Brazil. She called me, dad, I can't believe I just danced in the streets of, of Rio at Carnival. Um, it was amazing. She called me from everywhere. She called me, she had just met Mandela in South Africa. Dad, I can't believe it. I, you know, I met Mandela. We were in a shopping center that made Beverly Hills look pathetic in Johannesburg and Joburg. And then that afternoon I was in a village where a family of 15 people lived in a room that's that was smaller than my room at home. 
And uh, she brought pencils and all kinds of gifts for kids, for the children, wherever she went. So she had an experience there. And then uh, she called, Dad, I can't believe we're going up. We're going to see the world's greatest symbol of eternal love, the Taj Mahal, tomorrow. And she spent, she said, we're going to go watch the sunrise on the Ganges. That's where people go to die, where babies go, come to born, to get born. It's one of the most magical places on earth. And she went that following morning, the Ganges, and they loaded a bus full of 27 kids up because they had overbooked the flight and told nobody. And they stuck them on a road where 1,600 people die every year, the Grand Trunk Road between um, Mumbai and Agra. And about an hour from the Taj Mahal, the bus flipped over a couple of times and my daughter died with three other beautiful young women. Jenna had gone to the back of the bus. There was a girl crying because she was scared. And Jenna left her seat and went to the back of the bus to sit with that girl and calm her thoughts. And they both died. My life as I knew it ended the moment my daughter's life. My phone rang at 10 o'clock at night. Um, I spent that night talking to President Clinton. Um, my daughter, the State Department, um, President Clinton said, please don't try to go to India. I'm going to bring your daughter home. Um, but, but my daughter's life had ended and my life as I knew it had ended as well. And so for the past, it'll be 27 years next week on the 27th of March. Um, you know, there's a saying that when when you lose a child, some part of you dies. And I believe that's true. But you also then begin to notice that not all of you died. And then there are some decisions that you get to make about, is there any way I can go on and live out the rest of my life as an expression of my love for my daughters, of my love for this life and my gratitude for this life, rather than allowing despair to become the central organizing principle of my life. And so I entered that fight, even though I have to admit all the wind had been taken out of my sails. And so I started a nonprofit foundation, the Jenna Druck Foundation, to honor my daughter's life and spirit with two programs and with the help of friends. Um, I, I, I talk about friends who became brothers. They're really brothers. Some friends become brothers, um, our chosen families. And I started two programs. One of them was the continuation of my daughter's girls leadership program. And 18,000 girls went through that program over the years. And then I started a program called Families Helping Families, which was a program to help families who had lost a child and eventually grew into a program for families who had suffered losses. And over the years, you know, grew that foundation, it became my devotion. Um, and for 20 years of my life, that's what I did. I'm still on call. I still get calls all the time from families from all over the world that have suffered tragedies. Um, 
I mentioned earlier about um, New York. I have a flag up here from the uh, fire department and um, all the families that I helped. I gave the first town hall meetings for the families of firefighters. I visited every firehouse in the New York region, um, gave programs, um, commuted to New York, supporting families, worked with the, the dads. Um, you know, there's counseling service unit in New York, the New York Fire Department is a very closed system. But um, a lot of the families had heard me lead town hall meetings um, in other places, and they insisted. They said, we got to get this guy. So I was very proud and honored to to be one of the guys that, that worked with the counseling service unit in New York after 9-11. But I've been the go-to guy for um, all these years since my daughter died. And as I started saying, um, next week will be the 27th, on March 27th, will be the 27th year. My daughter only lived to 21, but it'll be the 27th year that um, that she, since she died in India. And part of my journey, um, you know, there's no way to describe it. I think uh, one of the gifts of this trip to the bottom of pain is that we get to learn compassion and we get to learn what resilience truly is, what we get to really learn what it means to, um, to grieve in a healthy and constructive way, to rise up, and to rise up not in a short term. You and I talked about short term solutions and quick fixes and as compared to long term solutions. So um, it's really become a, a lifelong inquiry for me to learn about what it really means to heal, what it really means to go on in this life, um, to rise up from, you know, an unspeakable darkness and loss and adversity and um, what we can do. And that's what I've made a life study of. And uh, from, and it's not something I pulled out of a book or my head. It's something that I've lived and that I'm proud to be able to talk about with you this morning. <laughs> well, thank you for that. And I want to get into your work with not only the first responders, but the um, some of the victims or the parents of the victims of the school shootings. I think that's a very important voice to be heard as well. Before we do, on the podcast I listened to, I heard you touch on the... The, the challenge that was your faith at that time and, and, and you know, the kind of um, uh, the element of being um, betrayed is the wrong word we're looking for. But, you know, where, where was God at that moment, as it were? And it reminded me of when I used to listen to Wayne Dyer talking about that very thing, the, the concept that God is withholding, like you have to pray enough to him or her or whoever, you know, whatever gender your own God would be in your mind. And then if you pray enough, then I'm going to let you have this thing, or then I'll save your loved ones. Talk to me about that that dialogue with your own personal spiritual God and how you were able to come to terms with maybe what you used to believe to what that um, that metamorphosis was to, to the other side of grief. Yeah, thank you for asking. 
I think that's it's such an important conversation. I would imagine people who are listening to the podcast, or if you're go- if you've gone through anything, or if you're going through, or just living the life that you that you're living, what you get to witness and what you have to make try to make sense of is going to involve, you know, who's running the show, who's the casting director here, where's customer service. And do I have a right to object to what's happened here? This is horrible. You know, if we are in a profession or in a life where we get to witness some of the most horrific losses, tragedies, devastations, then we've then we were already in the class. Spirituality 101 or God 101, higher power 101. We're trying to to get some degree of understanding about how does this all work? How does this work? How could, you know, if God is a puppeteer, if God's pulling all the strings, how could God let some of these things happen? What kind of a God would let the, you know? So in my life, after losing Jenna, I realized that I there was a part of me that needed to object. There are a lot of people saying, you know, sit, be a good boy, sit with your hands folded, pray nicely, listen to all the people that say Jenna's in a better place or God needed another angel. And instead of choking them and throwing them to the ground, buy into it. And another part of me said, uh-uh, there's no way. I want to spit in the face of God. I want to spit in the face of this universe. I object. Whoever's in charge of what happened to take my daughter's life, this beautiful, radiant, star that was rising in the world that had so much to give to this world and contribute. And it was my daughter to watch blossom, to become what she was to become a mother, a career contributor to this world, a bright light. Get me casting. Get me the customer service. Get somebody on the phone who can answer and explain, because I think this sucks. And I was furiously angry and railing at God. And in one afternoon where I was furiously raging and imagining that I had God's attention, I said, Let's kill your child and see how you like it. See how you like it. At which point I realized what I had just said, and I imagined a tear in the eye of God. I imagined God was crying with me, and that God whatever God was, the higher power, the intelligence, this creative force in the universe 
could understand from their own experience, from its own experience, the degree of pain that I was feeling. And my attributions of God as a puppeteer pulling all the strings started to dissipate. And I began to feel like maybe God is just the force of goodness and love in the world, the force of compassion and empathy, and that God wasn't pulling all the strings, and that I had a compassionate presence that was with me, not leaving me out to, to dry. And that changed everything for me. It didn't give me 100% certainty about how life, what life is and what death is. I think we get to live in, in a great mystery. The great beyond is beyond our capacity to, to fathom. Neil deGrasse Tyson told me last week, he said, you know, we used to think we lived in a universe. No, there are universes. Now we, we've gone into deep space and we can see. There are universes. There's infinite possibilities to what this is. It's the unknowable, as yet unknowable. And all of us get to live in the middle of a mystery of the as yet unknowable. And if we're striving for certainty, I'm writing something down because I want to remember it. If we're striving for certainty and we insist on certainty, we will miss out on turning the as yet unknowable into the more knowable, more accepting, more understandable. If we can't handle moments of feeling absolutely lost, and we can't tolerate that, and we insist arrogantly on being found, we miss out. We've got to hold ourselves in that lostness sometimes, in that unknowingness, in that mystery and breathe into it and to say this is this is the way it is this is i'm i'm doing the best i can to grasp and i open myself to deeper and greater understandings of what this life is of what death is and to the best of my abilities i want to grasp that but what i can do is this, this, and this. What I can do is to create meaning in my life, is to be part of the solution, whether that's just showing one other person kindness, whether it's showing myself compassion. We are awful on that continuum from self-criticism, harsh self-criticism, condemnation, judgment, 
to self-compassion, acceptance, support, encouragement, patience, kindness. Most of us have a long way to go to move up that scale, to take our foot off our throat and put our hand on our heart. The foot on our throat is every time we talk to ourselves with condemnation and harsh criticism and beat ourselves up and bully ourselves and pressure ourselves and accuse, prosecute ourselves. You're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not loving enough. You're not tall enough. You're not short enough. You're not rich enough. You're not handsome enough. You're too old. You're too this. You're too that. Every time we're condemning ourselves, prosecuting ourselves, rather than supporting, encouraging, being showing ourselves every kindness and consideration, being clear, giving ourselves tough love, but with a loving tone, calling ourselves on things, getting angry with ourselves, but in a, in a constructive way, raising the bar in our life, but in a constructive way, encouraging way, forgiving ourselves. Our hand is on our heart. We grow, we heal, we aspire to new heights. We get to go on and become the better version of ourselves. Living like this, all we do is we choke on our, on our anger, our judgment, our condemnation, our diminishment of ourselves, our keeping ourselves as hostages to old judgments or sources of embarrassment, humiliation, transgressions, things that we believe we could have done better, failures. So we're in the driver's seat. And it starts with us. Most everything good starts with the goodness that we are willing to show ourselves. Beautiful. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing that. I mean, that, that is the nucleus of, I know, of a lot of, you know, of your work and your passion. The One of the real common denominators that I hear over and over again from people that have been through a dark place, whether it's the loss of a child, whether it's their own mental health journey, is refinding a new sense of purpose. But another truth seems to be when the time is right. If you start a nonprofit, you know, two weeks after there was a gun in your mouth, that might be a bit too soon. It might be actually contradictory to the growth that you're trying to foster. So when did you realize the time was right to seek that purpose? And then, you know, talk to me about the foundation and other areas that you were able to start helping other people. And I'm assuming then taking that focus off yourself and and allowing that that giving that healing others element to also heal within it what you're saying is so important when the time is right because you know i i talk about the seven honorings honor for me is is one of the most important words and sources of healing 
and a redemption of growth, of becoming that better version of ourselves, of integrity, of, tra- of going through transitions and coming out the better version of us. And so how do we, how do we take care of ourselves? The timing is right. If our foot's on our throat, we're going to do things before we're ready. If our hand's on our heart, we're going to be saying to people, can we talk about that in six months from now? Would be okay with you if 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 we put that conversation on hold or doing that on hold, because I don't feel like now is the best time for me. I'm gathering my strength. I'm gathering my courage. Gathering my faith. I'm gathering my my energy to go on. It's a time of gathering for me, not of action. Other, other action, implementation. And I think knowing that is an act of self-compassion. And for me, I kind of knew in the beginning, as I was sitting there writing my daughter's eulogy, something a parent should never have to do, but I knew that I wanted to do something good in her name one of the seven honorings is do something good in their name. And I knew that I could start slowly. I was barely able to function in the beginning, but I could start slowly. And I had the support of friends that had turned to be brothers. I've been blessed in this life with close men friends with brothers and I was surrounded by them when Jenna died. Some of them stepped up. One of them had a little office space in his building. He said, why don't you run it out of here? So suddenly I had a file cabinet and a desk. And some of Jenna's friends said, I'm, we're going to help you get this started. Something needs to happen in her name. But we went slowly at, at a pace that we could handle. And it grew into what it grew into. Then I get a call from New York, from people who are aware of what I had been through. Seven, eight months after Jenna died, I get a call from one of the companies that I'm I'm working with businesses, I'm working with individuals, and I get a call, you know, why don't you come and talk to us about what happened and we'll see if we can continue to negotiate uh, you know, business relationship with you because I had told everybody I'm just going to step back. And they said, why don't you come and we'll talk and we all want to support you and whatnot. It was a company I'd worked with right next to, not far from the World Trade Center. And I went, I planned the trip. And the day before I was supposed to leave, the TWA flight for Paris out of New York went down into the water, crashed, and everybody died. And I was going to be on the flight to the East Coast. And I got on the flight, and instead of going to my business, my consulting organization, I went directly to the Ramada Rincon Hotel at Kennedy Center. 
I was directed by another client of mine who was the head of Atlantic Records at the time who said, called me, told me about what had happened and said he wanted to contribute, send an artist for a memorial. Atlantic Records wanted to contribute. And would I, you know, would I help him do that? And I said, yes, I'm going there. I showed up at Ramada Rincon Hotel and I said, um, you know, I have a background in psychology and I have my doctorate in clinical psychology. And I said, I'm here to help if I can. And they said, people over there could really use their, there are some flight attendants who got this couple because it's their honeymoon on the flight. She thought they had done, she had done them the favor of a lifetime and said, somebody needs to talk to her because she thought she had done something that she would remember for the rest of her life, that she had gotten this beautiful young couple who had just been married on the flight to Paris as a gift, and then now they had died. Go speak with her. And so I started speaking, and I started going around, and I became part of the effort, and I realized I had something that I could... I could share without talking about what had happened to me and making it about me. I was in a position to share and guide a lot of what was happening. A young man came into the building. First of all, they asked me to speak in front of every all the families that were arriving from everywhere, the families of the people who had died in the accident. And they asked me to speak to them. I spoke, got up at the podium, and I said some things that help, were helpful because nobody knew what to say. Then this person comes in. He was apparently a politician or a community leader, and he starts going from table to table. And one of his aides calls me over and says, would you help guide him? He really, he, he's never done this. He really doesn't know a lot about what he's doing. So I started guiding him. I was introduced to Rudy Giuliani, the mayor of New York. And so I went from table to table telling Mayor, said, Mayor, you, you need to tell everybody who you are. Said, I'm Mayor Giuliani. I'm the mayor of New York. I am so sorry for your loss. Is there anything, you know, and I started guiding him. Here's what you do. You don't just walk up and nobody knows who the hell you are. You, there are certain things you don't say. You don't ask stupid questions. You, you get your office to decide what you can offer and what you are going to be doing to support what's happening, to support the families that are coming in. And I went from table to table to table to table with Mayor Giuliani. And I started helping different uh, organize some of the efforts, speaking with family members that came in. And I did that for three days before I finally went to my consulting client and talked with them. But that was, for me, a big moment where I felt like I could responsibly, that I had, whatever I had done in the eight months since Jenna's death and putting the Jenna Drug Center together and beginning to help families, I was ready to do that. And I started getting calls. You know, it's, it's not unusual that if you've gone through a tragedy or if you've been part of a group that somebody calls you when they see that you could possibly be a resource to somebody who's just beginning to go through it. So that's 
that's the way we grew our organization. And we trained people who had gone through tragedies into being bereavement facilitators, not experts, not clinicians, volunteer facilitators, learning the art of what it means to be a healing presence for other people that are going through in their, in their darkest moment of life. That's what we did. But that's how it started for me. And it has continued for 27 years. Um, I've had the honor of being called in to almost, you know, every major tragedy and being part of uh, a healing community. After Sandy Hook, we even wrote a book um, about everything that had happened. I, I led community meetings, meetings at the schools, meetings with teachers, meetings with parents. And we began to solidify, here's what you do in a community that has besieged, is besieged. And of course, every community is, is different. We had shootings last year at Uvalde, you know, but there it wasn't a hotel for anybody to stay in. There was This is a tiny community. First responders had never you know, I'd never changed a flat tire. The people who were, they were calling first responders had no idea and had never dealt with anything remotely resembling, you know, people being shot to death. So every situation is different, but uh, that's what I have been doing and writing books that I felt and making recordings that I felt could be of some help to people who are going through these kinds of tragedies and challenges and changes, including Katrina, Columbine, the Boston Marathon, um, Las Vegas, and so on and so forth. So you have such an incredible perspective. I mean, firstly, thank you again for sharing your journey of, you know, your own particular growth from that and how you were able to start using your tragedy to help others you mentioned columbine you know sandy hook i mean we've had so many of these horrendous attacks and unlike 9-11 where um you know it, it was adult loss even though they were children of you know older parents when you look at these school shootings especially sandy hook i mean that was absolutely heart-wrenching my son was in elementary school when that happened we had a near miss that i was in in my son's school when I was returning him from a doctor's appointment that I got locked in during a code red. So I got a really unusual perspective of what it's like inside the school. That ended up being, it was true code red, but it was a false alarm, thank God. But then about two, three weeks later, we had an actual shooting in Ocala in one of the other high schools. Um, talk to me about what you see as far as why 30 years ago there were none of these happening and now we seem to get them with more and more frequency and then i'd love to hear from the other side what you're able to bring to these absolutely heartbroken parents you know, just as you were back in 1998 and 1996 excuse me yes let me let me start with what we what we can do. I created a template I talked about briefly before called the seven honorings. And they describe how we go on. You've already, when you talk about um, doing things when the time is right, it's critical. 
that that's got to be embedded in the way we honor. And then I'm going to talk about, um, you know, why is this happening? Um, let me start. Let me let me reverse that. Why is it happening? After Columbine, I wrote a book. Let me see if I have. Oh yeah, I wrote this book. For those who are listening, not watching, I wrote a book called "How to Talk to Your Kids About School Violence," with instructions for parents and. You know, it goes through everything. Um, one of the core issues is that kids have, developmentally, kids have very strong emotions. They're caught somewhere between childhood and adulthood. They're teenagers. Some of us, some of them, some kids in their 20s are still teenagers emotionally, psychologically, or they had they were traumatized, or they never de really developed their brains, never developed their emotional hearts, never developed. They were wounded, enraged, angry, vengeful, isolated, and found. Partners, in some cases, in Columbine, two boys found each other. So when you take the intensity of some of those emotions and you put a gun in somebody's hand, you have amplified those emotions. You have amplified the damage and destruction that those emotions can can be expressed through a hundred thousand times, infinite times. We are a we are a country that is armed and dangerous. I interviewed the National Rifle Rifle Association's um, program for children. Um. Boy, I have the name in here. I've, I think I've forgotten it at the time. But they have a program for kids that has fought for its own existence over the decades. Eddie Eagle, the Eddie Eagle program. They've been at war with the NRA who doesn't want anybody to even know that they exist. I don't know what this is, you know, years ago when I wrote the book. I interviewed them. And they were saying, we, we're an organization that can teach families how to, if they're going to choose to harbor guns, how to do so safely, how to educate our kids about the usage of guns, how to make sure that our kids who are struggling emotionally or out of control emotionally, we don't know whether they're out of control emotionally, don't have access to weapons. We will lock our weapons in safes. We will use them and model discrete usage of weapons. They within themselves as an organization were struggling to hold themselves accountable to what was beginning to happen after Columbine.
Needless to say, they failed miserably. If they were the leader of, of creating a model for how to be gun owners and to train to, to become part of the regulation and the responsibility and the accountability so that what's happened doesn't happen, they have failed miserably. And we have failed to hold them accountable at some level. I mean, there have been advances, and there are organizations now devoted to creating that kind of accountability and safety. But how do we put more, more hundred million peop, guns in this country? How do, we, how do we holster them? How do we educate people now when there are so many guns on the streets in possession of people who will use them recklessly and who, who, are, who are candidates for mass murder? It is, it is a, a comprehensive, multifaceted effort. It has to do with mental health. It has to do with the laws by which we live and guns, the gun laws. It has to do with accountability on the part of organizations that call themselves leaders. And that should have a moral responsibility to helping be part of the solution of the fact that we have more mass murders on than we have had days in the year 2023 so far. More mass killings with guns. So it's a horrific, horrific tragedy. And this book was you know, written right after it's endorsed by the parents of kids who were killed in Columbine. And it's been read by the parents of kids who were killed and Sandy Hook. That's that's the one part. The second part is the seven honorings. How do we talk to the parents? The first thing is we don't talk. It's almost like the book, How to Talk to Your Kids About School Violence. First rule is you don't talk, you listen. You ask open-ended questions. You ask them what they think. You create a safe place for kids to talk openly about their fears, their ideas, their grief, their losses, their horror, all of it, the full, whatever they're going through, what they feel like, or their impulses to what they do with their own anger. You know, kids are little kids are little animals. You know, give them, teach them how to constructively express when they're pissed off. Don't shut them down and tell them it's wrong. Teach them how to be pissed off, but they don't hurt themselves or anybody else. You know, how do you righteously stand up for yourself? How do you protect yourself? How do you, sometimes people try to protect themselves in a way that cre actually creates more danger. You know, these are things that kids need to learn. So, but back to the seven honorings. The first honoring is 
your own survival. The way you honor the person or people that you've lost is to survive their death. The line between our life and death is very thin when somebody we love dies, somebody we would give our own life for. All the wind is out of our sails. Life's meaning, purpose is often diminished. In the rawness of our grief and our trauma, we bite people's noses off. So surviving means in invoking a level of self-care that we've never had to invoke before. I talked before about having our hand on our heart, showing ourselves every patience, every encouragement, every support, every understanding, every forgiveness. While at the same time holding ourselves accountable, but doing it with a gentleness and a kindness. So the first honoring is our own survival. It's surviving the death and making the choices. No, we didn't get to play God. We didn't get to decide whether I didn't get to decide whether my daughter Jenna died or not. But I do get to choose whether I'm going to make my love the central organizing principle and honoring her and a mission of service or whether I'm going to make my own despair and vengeance and anger the central organizing principle of my life. The second honoring is to do something good in, in their name. That could be lighting a candle. That's all. It could be giving money if they died of cancer to a cause that's trying to unravel why people get cancer and prevent it or suicide or supporting firefighters aid or the brothers that had to watch their brothers die. One of the first families after 9-11 that I helped um, and one of the first workshops I gave Probably 75, 100 people walked in. They were all the families, family members of firefighters who died in 9-11. And in the front row was a, a woman. She had a cast on her leg. She walked in with crutches and with her husband. And she was one of the first people to speak. And she said, Dr. Druck, he's pathetic. It's been four or five months. I can't get him to do anything. He's... I, you know, I've lost a husband. Can you say something or do something? You know, he's useless. He's sinking. And I said, I think I can help you. Would you please stand up and put your crutches down? And she said, are you kidding? I said, no, please. I'm going to show you how to, I'm going to solve the problem for you. And I said, I want you to sprint as fast as you can to that wall and back. The wall was about oh, 10, 15 yards. I said, please run as fast as you can to that wall. She said, what are you, crazy? I broke my foot. I said, now you can sit down. How much time have you take, 
taken to listen to what it was like for your husband to go into Tower 2 with his brother. His brother was commanded to go up. He was commanded to go down, take care of some business, and you got out, and he didn't. Have you asked him what it's been like to talk to his parents as the surviving sibling? Have you asked him what it's like, what it's he's thinking about going back to work? How he doesn't know if he could possibly do that again. These are the conversations that you need to be having with your husband. And today we're going to be having all those conversations, and I welcome you here. Later in that day, at the end of the day, people had laughed, they had cried. It was an extraordinary day. At the end of the day, a man walked in to get his wife. He stuck his head in the room. I'm here. And a couple of the other people said, hey, man, we wish, we wish you had been here today. We wish you had joined us today. And he looked in and he said, yeah, you know, I know how this crap works. Misery loves company. And the woman looked back at him and she said, no, sir. Hope loves company. And hope loves company became our word. It was on all of our centers all through the New York area. It became our watchword, hope loves company. Oh, let me show you this. I even have a button here. I can show you. Pretend that you can see this. Everybody's <laughs> What does it say? It says uh, South Nassau Communities Hospital Hope Loves Company World Trade Center Bereavement and Trauma Program. Remembering Jenna Druck. They always put remembering Jenna Druck because, you know, I had been and I had been honored. I've continued to be honored and it's, it's one of the great honors of my life. So anyhow, so do something good in their name. Third honoring is to begin to cultivate a spiritual relationship with the person you've lost. The love that never dies is real. The love never dies in either direction, either the love you express. I tell my daughter, Jenna, I love her every day. I imagine that she's telling me she loves me every day. I allow myself to imagine that. Do I know for certain? No. Do I give a damn? No. If I'm arrested by the thought police, because I feel like there's a sign, um, or I'm defrocked by the psychology authorities, I don't care. I bet my faith where things give me comfort to imagine that that might be possible. But I've cultivated a spiritual relationship with my daughter so that it's not only sorrow, it's the love that's given back and forth that has continued that I allow myself to feel that's still alive. Even though sometimes it's accompanied by a, a tsunami of sorrow, that's okay too. 
If that's what comes with the package, I'll allow it. The next honoring is to embody some aspect of their spirit or their personality. It might be that they were so funny. They were lighthearted. They were so nutty. They were so kind and thoughtful. They were such good listeners. They were such strong advocates for what they believed in. Whatever it is, embody that as something you want to be more like when you grow up and as you grow up or as you grow older. The next honoring is to make new memories, to write new chapters of life. Some of us don't dare to go on. How dare I go on when my daughter's life has ended? How dare I enjoy a morsel of food, see a beautiful sunset, welcome in a grandchild with joy, and yet it's these are the very things that would that they would be so relieved to see that that you had risen above and been able to enjoy even after they died. So writing new chapters of life takes great courage, but it's summoning the courage to write new chapters of life and to let life go on, to make the most of the rest of whatever days we have. And the last honoring is, well, the last two, one is called Take the High Road. After 9-11, the average age of the person who died was 38. So there was a mother, there were living parents, there was a wife and kids, and families began to tear apart. A lot of families tore apart. Why are they sending you information? You know, um, I'm his mother, or I'm his father, or I'm her father, you know. And families were beginning, well, you're never going to see your grandkids again. Families were beginning to tear apart in the rawness of grief. So we instituted a program called Take the High Road. Treat the people in your family and your friendship circle as an expression of your love for the person you've lost. Not as a result of the vengeance, the anger, the hurt, the rawness of your grief. And the last honoring is one we talked about before. Live with your hand on your heart, showing yourself care and compassion, kindness, encouragement, support. Take your foot off your throat. Shame, humiliation, embarrassment. Criticism, harsh criticism, condemnation, punishment unforgiveness. And so what we do, we don't sit there and create a cookie cutter, you know, read this and follow it and you're going to be well. No. The first thing we do is is to teach self-compassion. How could I not feel as messed up as I feel? I need to stop judging myself. Of course I'm messed up. Of course, I'm being feeling re-traumatized. Of course, everything's still a trigger. I can't, everything triggers my sadness, my 
my, my trauma. So it's accepting that this is the way it is for me right now, rather than condemning it or judging it or considering it to be a failure. You know, I'm not doing something right. I'm a bad griever. I'm a bad, I'm, you know, I'm wasted. I'm over. Anything diminishing. And I think allowing people to feel that they are human, you are but human and that's okay. And you take your time and creating a safe place for people to say whatever they're going through without the fear of being, somebody's going to say something stupid to try to fix them. Hey, I figured you out and I'm going to fix you now. You know, instead of sending the message to people that there's something wrong with them, that they should be, you know, and here's the answer, stupid. Giving people permission to be human and to be figuring things out in their own way, in their own time, and to find their own path of honor forward is is the key. When I go in and I work with families, I'm just listening. And I'm not, unsolicited advice has no place. Your ego is no place. This is what service means when you're talking about bereavement and trauma, traumatic losses. Service means you check taking things personally at the door. You allow people to rail, to be angry, to be lost, to be confused, to be confounded, even to want to die. People who say, most people who say they want to die aren't suicidal. They just want to die. They just don't want to continue to feel the pain that they feel. And, and how could you not think about, what are my options here? They don't want to die. They don't want to commit suicide. They're not suicidal. So often people lose confidence in their therapist or their clergy or whatever. And they say, you know, they say, I just, you know, I've nothing left. I've, my motivation to, to do anything is, is gone. And they don't realize that's the most alive part of them is the part of them that worries that that they have no wind left in their sail. And what asking them, what are some things you're doing that you feel might be helpful to you or that you've seen other people do that might be helpful, that I could help, you know, because they people need hand-holding that I could help you get started with. And starting just slow, one breath at a time, one moment at a time. Showing that kind of, modeling that kind of patience are often the starting place for people in, a, in acute grief. And also depathologizing it. I wrote an article the first year after Jenna died. I had all these psychology types, um, you know, pathologizing what I was going through. And I wrote an article called Sorrow is Not Depression. You haven't lost your mental health. Maybe, I mean, you may have, but because you're feeling sorrow, don't pathologize it. How could you not be sad? as sad as sad can get? 
How could you not be feeling that way? You just had your heart ripped out. How could things not feel completely like you're living a whole new life? You have to figure it all out. You got to figure God out. You got to figure out managing this much pain and confusion and lostness, unknowingness. You got to figure out how do I take care of my kids? I can barely take care of myself. There are surviving children. I'm a sandwich generationer. How do I? I've got aging parents and kids. How the hell am I going to take care of myself? I'm so busy taking care of my aging parents and my younger kids. When the hell does my time come? And what the hell would I do with it anyhow? So it's a time where if ever we needed love and support and encouragement and trusted confidants, TCs, to be by our side, to walk with us, to stand with us, to be on the ride with us. It's now, if ever we deserved. And if you're one of those people that somebody listening is one of those people whose receiver is broken, like mine used to be, it's like, I don't need a, you know, come on, I can, what's wrong with me? I Come on, suck it up. If your receiver is broken and you deflect the help that other people are trying to give you, get over it. Think about all the times people have tried to love and support you, that you've defeated them, that you've denied them that opportunity. And how much you give other people. You expect other people to allow you to be so giving and loving and protective and caring and supportive in their darkest moment, but you won't receive it yourself. So get reciprocal. Get over it. All those self-care saboteurs, telling yourself that you're taking food out of somebody else's mouth or you can't trust other people, you don't deserve it, or you're going to be... You're going to lose status. Get over those fears. If ever you needed and deserved support, love, help. The least utilized four-letter word in the male vocabulary is the one that begins with H. Help. Beautiful. Well, I mean, there's no better place to wrap this up than right there. So I'm not even going to add any more questions. I'm sure we'll do a second conversation down the road. You have such a spectrum of books out there, so I won't list them at the moment, but you, we've talked about aging. You've got books on that, whether it's your own aging, whether it's um, you know caring for an aging relative. You talked about the school violence. The uh, You're holding up now the self-care handbook, so that's within so many different ones. Where are the best places online for people to find the books and learn more about you? Well, James, the best... The best thing to go, go, you know, if you want to write me directly, it's ken at kendruck.com or info at kendruck.com. And go to my website, www.kendruck.com, K-E-N-D-R-U-C-K.com. You might like the things that I post every few days on my Facebook page, Dr. Ken, D-R-K-E-N-D-R-U-C-K. Um and on Instagram and and uh, 
every, you know, all the social media sites, but, and you can go to Amazon to buy my books, then my new book, how we go on self-compassion, courage, and gratitude on the path forward will be coming out in the next couple of months, but um, I'm already getting names of people who want that a copy of that book sent to them or want to pick it up on Amazon or whatever. Um, call, you can contact me at that infra, at that um, number. You can call my business. My office is 858-863-7825-858-863-7825. So there's, you know, just Google Ken Druck and you'll find me somehow and find the books. You can order them on Amazon, including the books are books on tape too. One of my dear and close friends is an Emmy award-winning singer, songwriter, who said, if you're going to do your books on tape, I'll, I'm going to murder you if you don't let me record you. So I went into the studio with him and I recorded my books on tape. So you can, you can get, um, audible versions of of what i've written as well beautiful well i just want to say thank you so much we've been over so many different areas from social justice to your own personal grief and then you know i was going to ask more about the the first responder element but you wove those into some of the you know, the answers already so we got an insight into what you did with 9-11 and you know some of the school shootings um so i'm sure there's a lot more that we could discuss down the road in a second conversation if you'd be open to it I look forward to that. I honored to be seven, number 744. I'm going to cherish that number. And again, James, I thank you for your service. Not, not your service on many fronts in making, you know, bringing, allowing me to share what I know with your audience. And, uh, and I commend you on the work you're doing. 